Well, good morning, church. As the kids are making their way to their classes, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 28. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Great Commission as a starting point. We're in the middle of our study, uh, our sermon series. It's just a four-part sermon series. We're actually at the tail end of it, called Sent Together, Living as a Community on Mission. So week one, we talked about what is biblical community? What does it look like in our day today? How do we pursue it? Second week, we talked about how does the gospel intersect with community? How do we press the gospel into one another's lives so that we might grow in holiness and be good representatives of him whom we, whom we are ambassadors for? Last week, Tyler preached a great message in, in telling us, reminding us that we as a community have been given a mission by God. And that mission is to make disciples of all nations. As he put it, that it is the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, proclaiming and displaying the grace of God. So this morning, in our final week, we're going to talk about the how. How do we do this? So we're going to get a little little practical this morning. We're going to talk about how we fulfill this mission, but in particular... With respect to what we've been talking about in this series, how can we live as a community on mission? So let's look first at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus' final words before he ascended back to the Father and gave us our mission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our great commission. This is the heartbeat of our church. I, I, I went back and checked, and I, I, I actually thought this was the case, but I preached on this passage the, very, the, the second Sunday that we existed as a church. The very first Sunday back in January of 2008, we, we talked about our purpose, our mission being to glorify God. But on the second Sunday, we started a sermon series that lasted for two months called Mathe Tuo. And we called it Mathe Tuo. Some of you are, were, some of you are here, were with us on that second Sunday. But we called it mathetuo because in Greek, that word means to make disciples. And that's the command that we have in the Great Commission that's encapsulated for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And I've preached on those verses, and I've quoted from those verses probably more than any other in the entire New Testament in the ensuing almost 11 years now that we've existed as a church. Why? Because this is the mission that was given to the bride of Christ, to the church. To make disciples, to take the gospel to those who haven't heard so that God might regenerate them through his Holy Spirit and bring them into the family of God so that he might be worshipped by them. The The very mission of our church is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. It is the heartbeat of our church. But I want to suggest to you this morning, and perhaps admit to you this morning, that there is an aspect of the Great Commission that I've missed. 
that we've missed. And, and I think we've missed it because in a very technical way, that word mathetuo is not even in this passage. It's not even in the Great Commission, at least not in that form. So I want to give you just a, a, a brief little Greek grammar lesson to hopefully reveal something about the Great Commission, Commission that we've not seen before or perhaps not focused on <clears throat> before. Excuse me. The Greek verb mathetuo literally means to make disciples or to be a disciple, depending on the form of the verb that we find it in. And, and what determines whether it's to be a disciple or to make a disciple is the mood of the verb, whether it's an indicative verb or a participle or an imperative. And what we have in Matthew 28, verse 19, is an imperative. It's an imperative verb. It's a command. And so what he's telling us here is to make disciples. But ancient Greek does something with verbs that we don't do with verbs in English. And, and what, what happens with verbs in the Greek is that they can indicate more than just the definition of the verb or the kind of verb that it is. They can also communicate things like whether it's a first person verb or second person or third person. We don't do that in English. Greek verbs can communicate whether it's singular or plural or what the voice or the tense or the mood is. And the way that Greek verbs indicate these things is by changing the ending of the verb, or as grammarians like to call it, declensions. So most ang uh, languages, including English, don't have declensions. They don't, they don't do this with verbs. So in English, we would say, I will run, or you will run, or they will run, or he, she, or it will run. But in Greek and other ancient languages like Latin and Hebrew and even some languages that are still used today like Arabic and Turkish and Russian and Hungarian, what they do is they change the ending of the verb. So they would change the ending of the verb to run in order to indicate the person and the number and a number of other things. So that means that when we consider the word mathetuo, make disciples, as an imperative, that root verb literally means to make disciples. But that root verb is not only not found in Matthew 28, verse 19. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. But four declensions of that verb are found in Scripture. And the declension that we find in Matthew 28, verse 19 is mathetusate. Mathetusate. So I was being a bit facetious when I said mathetuo is not in the Great Commission. It is, but just not in that form. It is found there in the form or the declension mathetusate. And so this means that that declension is telling us more than just the definition of the verb, which means make disciples. It's also telling us that this verb that is there in the Great Commission is, this, is a second person plural imperative verb. Now let's think about that in English. The second person in the English is you. Plural means more than one. And so that doesn't change anything in English. In English, the plural of you is you, unless you're from the south or from Texas, and then it is what? Very good. 
And so literally what we have in the Great Commission in Matthew 20, 28 in, in our regional colloquialism is y'all make disciples. Literally, he's saying, in going, therefore, y'all make disciples. Oddly enough, in Luke's account of the Great Commission, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find the exact same thing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find three, not one, but three second-person plural verbs. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, but you will receive power. That's the first second-person plural verb. You will receive, y'all will, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon y'all. That's the second second-person plural verb. And you will be, that's the third second-person plural verb. Y'all will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In each of those, those cases, you could replace you with y'all. It's a second-person plural verb that is being used here. And if we translate it into English where we use the pronoun instead of a declension on the end of the verb, it would be y'all. Y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon y'all and y'all will be my witnesses. So I'm officially changing the plural you to y'all here this morning. You heard it first. But what does all that mean? That's a great Greek grammar lesson, but what, how does that apply to me? How, how do we, what does that change about the Great Commission? It doesn't change anything about the Great Commission, but perhaps it might inform how we understand it and how we apply it in our lives. Because what we understand from this is Jesus gave this command, not primarily to individuals, but to a group of people, a community, if you will, to the y'all who were gathered around him. So who are the y'all that were gathered on that hill outside of Galilee before Jesus ascended back to heaven? Well, it was the disciples. And not just the 11. Acts tells us that there were about 120 of them at that point. Followers of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. Those whom God is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, us. We were there. Disciples of Jesus. So the point is that Jesus gave the Great Commission, the command to make disciples of all nations to a community of believers. Now what does this mean? What this means is the Great Commission is a team effort. It's a team effort. It's a mission that's given to us collectively. As Tyler rightly defined mission last week, it is the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God proclaiming and displaying the grace of God, and I would just add, to the glory of God. But who is the recipient of this mission? It's the people of God. Not just you and I individually, but us collectively. So how do we obey this mission as a community? How do we seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ by taking the gospel to those who need to hear it so that they might be reconciled back to God and be worshipers of God once again, how do we do this as a community? I think one of the things we can do is be informed by the early followers of Jesus and how they obeyed this mission. In Mark chapter 6, we have the story of Jesus sending out the disciples. At that time, it was just the twelve. And he sends them out in order to drive out unclean spirits and to heal people of diseases 
and to preach a message of repentance. But what's informative to us from that passage for our purposes this morning is that he sent them out two by two. Now, why did he do that? We, we, we don't really know. We weren't told a reason. Jesus didn't say, this is why I'm sending you out two by two. And so we're left to infer or guess as to why he sent them out two by two instead of alone. Maybe part of it was because of security. Maybe it was safer as they went out into these places to go together instead of alone. Maybe it was for boldness in sharing this message of repentance that he had given them, that they're going to be more bold and have more courage if they have another brother along with them. Maybe perhaps it was to validate their witness of Jesus. In those days, an eyewitness account that came from two people had more validity than an eyewitness account that came from one person. And I would argue it still does today. Maybe they could cast out more demons together than they could alone. Maybe they could heal more diseases if they worked together than if they were alone. Maybe none of those reasons are right. Maybe all of them are right. But the point is that Jesus did not send them out alone. He sent them out two by two. We also see this in the 10th chapter of Luke. When Jesus made this radical call to follow him, to follow him in obedience and to be in disciple. And he talked about what that was going to be like. You remember that? He said, foxes have holes. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you sure you want to follow me? Because it's not going to be easy. Someone perked up and said, well, okay, but let me first go bury my father who has died. Seems like a reasonable request. But Jesus said, He said, no. He said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It was a very radical and urgent call to follow him. And, and after this radical call to follow Jesus, he then sent out 72 of his followers. Again, not alone, not by themselves, but again, two by two. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verses 1 through 3, it says, After this the Lord Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he, where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of of wolves. Now again, we're not told why they're sent out two by two instead of alone. But that's the pattern for Jesus. Sending out his disciples two by two, not alone, but together. We see this display also this pattern also on display in the early church in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's implied, and so we have to kind of infer it. There are other times when it's explicit. One of the places where I believe it's implied is in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see the boldness of Peter standing up at Pentecost and preaching this bold sermon on the streets of Jerusalem just a few weeks after Jesus was crucified right outside of Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and preaches this bold sermon. Remember that? Why was Peter so bold? 
Well, he was bold because he, he had just been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom Jesus had promised has, had come on the, on the disciples and they were filled with the Spirit. And then, Jesus, uh, then, then Peter stood up and preached this bold sermon. But I just wonder if Peter would have been that bold had he been alone. I don't know. But we can't miss the fact that in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Luke tells us this at the outset of that story. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the people of Jerusalem. You remember in Acts chapter 2, later towards the end of chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we talked about biblical community and what it looked like for the early church. We have that just beautiful description of community and how they experience stuff together in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But at the end of that, verses, verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I think from context, it's reasonable to infer from this that perhaps they were reaching these folks with the gospel together, not individually, because it comes at the tail end of this description of how they did everything together, including evangelism. In Acts chapter 3, we see it more explicitly. It was Peter and John. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, So they met there to do ministry. They healed a man who was lame from birth. And then a crowd gathered. And as a result of that, a door was opened for Peter to stand and preach a bold sermon again on uh, on the portico of Solomon, Solomon's portico there in the temple. They were together, Peter and John. Later in chapter 4, when Peter had an opportunity to address the council the, council, the Jewish council there in Jerusalem, filled with the elders and scribes and even the high priest himself. He stands up and he preaches this bold sermon to this council. But in verse 13, at the end of that, it says, when they, that's the council in Jerusalem, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't Peter by himself. It was Peter and John in ministry together. And together they were recognized as having been with Jesus. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 13, 35, when he said, they will recognize you as being my disciples by the love that you have for one another. In other words, the Christian love that we have for one another makes us recognizable as Jesus followers as disciples of Jesus. But the question is, how will they ever see the love that we have for one another if we're not together? As someone once said, authentic biblical community is one of the best apologetics for the gospel. But how can our community be an apologetic for the gospel if our community is never on display to them? The unbelievers in Jerusalem were exposed to the biblical community shared by Peter and John. And they were recognized as having been with Jesus. The Apostle Paul himself, he later talked about in Philippians chapter 1, he talked about partnership in the gospel. And for him, it wasn't just a cliche catchphrase. At almost every letter, we see the Apostle Paul 
talking about those who were with him, who traveled with him. He did this consistently. And at the end of his letters, he consistently thanked those who had come to help him in ministry. The point is that Paul consistently was in the habit of doing ministry, not alone, but in community with other believers. He always went out on his missionary trips with other brothers. In Acts chapter 13, it was Paul and Barnabas sent out from Antioch on the first missionary journey. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 15, it was Paul and Silas, later joined by Timothy on the second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, it was Timothy, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, Sopater, Secundus, Tychicus, Trophimus, and even Dr. Luke himself. Point is, Paul didn't do ministry by himself. He did it in community with others. In fact, in all of the New Testament, there are only two examples of someone sharing the gospel with someone by themselves. One is Jesus with the woman at the well, and the other is the Phil, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So sharing the gospel individually was the exception in the New Testament, not the norm. The norm was sharing the gospel in community, evangelism in community, making disciples in community. Now, does that mean that sharing the gospel by yourself is wrong? Of course not. Jesus did it. Philip did it. I can almost guarantee you that Paul did it and all these other folks that were mentioned in the New Testament as followers of Christ, that they shared the gospel individually with folks. Of course, it's not wrong to share the gospel alone. In fact, for most of my life, this has been my understanding of evangelism that I have a responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with my neighbors and my coworkers and those within my spheres of influence. And for nearly 11 years now, that's been my exhortation to you, church, to share the gospel with your neighbors and your coworkers and those within your spheres of influence. And I'm not going to stop exhorting you and I in this. But I am going to adjust the exhortation with the encouragement to consider how we might do this together. How can you leverage the biblical community that we're all pursuing together, this pressing in to one another, this obeying the one another's of Scripture together, applying the gospel to our lives together so that we might grow in godliness and faith? How can we leverage that community for mission. That's what I want us to wrestle with in our base groups beginning this week, but this is not the end of it. This is not a this is not a one-time project that we're engaging in here. Just like our pursuit of community is a lifelong pursuit, so is this embracing of mission together. It is a lifelong pursuit. Not something at which we will arrive, but something that we will try and struggle with, and keep trying together. How can we leverage our community for the purpose of mission? In our base groups, we've been talking about a shared mission. And really, all that we've been talking about in our base group as we've been walking through this is, is, is leading up to this point about talking about a, a shared mission. 
the reality is we've talked much more before about what biblical community is and how the gospel intersects with community. And we've talked a lot in here over 11 years about what our mission is. We haven't talked a whole lot about shared mission and mission together. And so that's something that we're all going after together, and, and, and it's been leading to this point. So I want to talk to you this morning about what a shared mission is, and, and not specifically what the book says a shared mission is that we've been using together, but what we as elders are talking about when we talk about a shared mission, when we talk about mission together. And what we're talking about is leveraging biblical community for the purpose of mission. Now, for some groups, that might, might mean exact, exactly what the book is describing, that you identify one single thing, one single mission that you're going to be going after together missionally. Maybe it's a neighborhood. Maybe it's a school community. Maybe it's foster families, whatever it might be, an identifiable group of people where your whole base group is looking for ways to actively engage them in relationship and seek to serve them in tangible ways and look for opportunities to have gospel conversations with them. That's primarily what the, what the book that we've been using in our base group describes and encourages. And you know what? If that works for your base group, go for it. Go for it. But perhaps for a variety of reasons, that might be challenging for your base group, either because you all don't live close one to, to one another, or you have different schedules where you're all, you're all over the place, or perhaps because you have different ministry efforts, or for whatever reason. So we're not going to push that as the single way to live out this value, because that, that single idea of having a single common shared mission, that itself is not the goal. What the goal is, is to leverage our community for the purpose of of mission, to do mission together somehow. That's what we're after. That's what we want you to embrace. Now that can be accomplished in a number of different ways. Maybe your kids play little league, baseball, softball, dance, whatever. Maybe this means a couple of folks from your base group can take it upon themselves to begin going to those practices and those games with you, to be alongside you and and to be part of engaging the, the parents of your kids' uh, teammates in relationship with an eye towards looking for tangible ways to serve those people and help them in some way, and eventually to look for opportunities to have gospel conversations with them. Or maybe two or three of the moms in your group can join a, a book club together or a tennis team or a walking club or a jogging club or a CrossFit club or whatever else kind of club and use that as an opportunity to engage those people in relationship, look for ways to serve them, and then seek to have gospel conversations with them. Maybe a few of the guys in your base group can volunteer to do some home repair for some folks in your community. And in doing so, you seek to serve those people, engage them in relationship, and seek to have gospel conversations with them, seek to have gospel influence with them. Maybe somebody in your group has the gift of hospitality, and they absolutely love having their neighbors over and having dinner with their neighbors and having get-together with their neighbors. And so maybe you see if you can invite some of your base group members, not all of them, but 
whoever's available. And you introduce some of, the, some of your neighbors to your friends in your base group because you do life together, right? You're doing life with these people anyway. And so you invite, invite some of them and you introduce your neighbors to those people that you're doing life with so that they can see biblical community lived out. And then at that point, some of the folks in your base group are having a, a relationship with some of your neighbors looking for ways to serve them and looking for gospel opportunities with them. Or maybe you do something completely different, or maybe none of these work and something else does, or a number of these things, a mix of these things. The point here is to look at your base group as a team of missionaries that has parachuted in to the neighborhood around you as a team. And one of the things that you do as a team is to figure out who the people are around you and to figure out who you are and seek to reach the people that God has placed around you. And you do this as a team together. And you come up with strategies together and you attempt these strategies together. And maybe it's a group of three or four on this particular strategy over here and a group of four or five on this particular strategy over here. Or maybe you are able to come up with one single strategy that you're all pursuing together. That's up to you. You decide what is best for your team. But the point is, you're talking about this, you're praying about this, you're strategizing about, about this, you're engaging in this, and you're debriefing about this together as a team of missionaries. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to hear part of how this fleshes itself out. And I, I want you to hear a real-life example of how some of this stuff uh, gets worked out in real life. So I want to ask uh, Bodie Jenkins and Matt Helms and Jonathan Mitchell to come up. A few weeks ago, uh, the men of the church gathered together up in the North Georgia mountains for uh, their annual retreat. And um, while they were there, I didn't have the opportunity to go, but while they were there, uh, they had a rather unusual thing happen. Um, and and as a result of that, it led to some, some gospel conversations. And so um, I, I want you to hear from them, not specifically because this is an example of mission together in your base groups, because this, is, this was kind of odd, what happened. Um, but it, it is an example of some of the benefits of seeking to make disciples together. And there are a number of other guys that were involved in this, but we had limited space up here. So... Um, Bodie, I'll start with you. Just give us a, a, a brief description of, of what happened while you guys were there. Okay, so we, we were on the men's retreat at Rock Eagle, and you know, we thought we were there just as a group of guys. And so we're out by the fire. Uh, we have uh, roasting marshmallows and making s'mores and things like that. And some gentlemen kind of wander up, and we engage. It's just kind of making small talk, and we, I hear one of them say, yeah, we're here with some group. And it ends up there. There's hundreds of men there at the same time we are from AA, and they meet there every year. And so as we're standing around the fire, um, a man named Jason comes up, and we're talking. I was talking with him. Jonathan was talking with him. And we were able to share the gospel with him, and, uh, you know, all the guys were standing around. And then later on, another guy wanders up, and we were able to talk with him, and and then we were at dinner one night, and uh, our Saturday night we had dinner, and there's hundreds of men in this room, and there's 
multiple, many tables there, and this one gentleman decides to come up and sit down with with Matt. It was Matt and Mike and myself, and sat down with us. And um, he he was a pretty dominant personality, and he started talking. and And long story short, we were able to share the gospel with this guy. Not only there, but as we walked all the way back to where we were meeting. So it just was an opportunity. It, the Lord just divinely arranged this opportunity for us to be there and to be there together. Uh, in that in that setting to to cool. share the gospel. So Matt, let me let me ask you um, real quickly what what difference did it make having another brother or two with you when you had these opportunities to share the gospel? Um, it allowed me to listen better than maybe I would have otherwise. Um, it also allowed me to pray. Hmm. You know, as some of the other guys were were talking with him. Um, you know, I really could tell that this was not just a coincidence that this guy came and sat down and started to talk with us about these things. Um, so I was able to be a little more deliberate in, in seeking out, you know, God and just praying that the Holy Spirit would give all of us the words that he would have us to say so that we could, um, you know, reach him for God. Cool. Jonathan, what about you? What, what, uh, what difference did it make having, in, in your case, it was you and, and Bodie. Yeah. What difference did it make having having Bodhi or just another another brother with you as you were encountering this opportunity? Yeah, it was it was definitely a huge help to have Bodhi alongside me, and I think it was helpful in the sense that we were able to complement one another. Um, really, kind of look at the you know we were kind of share, sharing the gospel at different angles, and and I think we were both able to complement one another uh, well in that, and so kind of feeding off one another, and then also the, the boldness aspect as well. You're a lot more confident, a lot more bold and, and sharing whenever you have somebody standing right beside you uh, talking with, with this person. And so I thought, I thought for those reasons it was, it was definitely a big help to have Buddy with me. Cool. So, Buddy, let me uh, ask you this. Um, and I know you can't really put yourself in this position because it's not how it fleshed out, but, it, but if, if you had the opportunity to think through that came, same kind of scenario and for whatever reason you didn't have anybody else with you, you were by yourself in that setting, um, what, how do you think that things may have played out differently? Uh, I mean, to be honest, it probably would have been a lot different. Uh, I don't know that I would have had the boldness, um, especially just me, being there, like not, not even thinking that we were going to encounter anyone um, that was lost thinking it was just going to be the, us together. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been quite as bold, uh, to be honest with you guys. Um, and then I do know there was a point where I'm sharing with this guy, and it was like one of those things where I stopped, and it was like I didn't know, have anything else to say for a second. And Jonathan was there, and he just stepped right in and started talking. So that, I mean, that was just another benefit of having so like, a brother like, there. Like you said, you all were able to compliment kind of like one a, another and yeah. and – you know, he the was able, he was able to thing. correct everything that yeah. you said. That was pretty – he was standing over there, like, just speaking across me, changing everything I was saying. But it, <laughs> it worked out great like that. So, uh, Matt, let me, let me ask you, what, what, um, what lessons, if any, do you bring back from, from that little encounter – what lessons do you bring back with respect to what we're pursuing in our base groups, community and mission together? It was a practical example of that. You know, I brought back that uh, it worked better, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't experienced many situations where it was 
a group ministering to someone. Um, mostly it's been, like you said, uh, one-on-one with a colleague. Sometimes you, you hit a roadblock. You, you're, you're, you're not seeking God's counsel, and so you're, you kind of start rambling or something like that. And it was just a lot more authentic. Um, I, I feel like this guy really felt like we were interested in him because we were drawing him out, and we were mm. listening to him, and, and not listening just to speak, but really just to get to know him. Um, and in listening and letting him share, you're better equipped to, uh, to, to, find, to, to know where he's coming from and what he's mm-hmm. dealing with, and you can give him more encouragement that way. And so I think it was just a practical example of being on mission together and, uh, and how natural it was and how it didn't feel forced. And there were elements of boldness and uh, you know, less likely to shy away from the opportunity, I guess, as well. Yeah, cool. Would you all thank these guys for sharing with us this morning? Uh, And again, I know there were a number of other guys that were involved in that. I know we could go around the room and and lots of examples of that. But um, we heard some of the benefits, some of the practical benefits of seeking to pursue mission together from some of what they said. Uh, I just want to list eight of them for you. one of, one of them that, that Matt mentioned that I did not put on this list, and so you can make it number nine, um, is that idea of uh, being able to really listen to them because, like, the pressure's not on you. It's like, what's listening to them because you're sharing in this together? Never even considered that. But uh, number one, uh, accountability, right? It's, it, there's, there's accountability there uh, to actually do it. Number two, they mention a number of times boldness, courage. Uh, that we have more boldness and courage in our witness for Christ when there's another brother or sister standing next to us doing this with us. Um, number three, accuracy of witness. I'm teasing. I'm sure Jonathan did not change anything of what Bodhi said, but uh, that does help us if we're stumped by something. Um, it's okay to say, I don't know, I'll get back to you, but man, it'd be great if we were able to actually answer their question on the spot. And we're more likely to do that if we're doing it uh, together. Uh, Number four, they mentioned it, prayer support. When someone is actually sharing the gospel, I'm sure that the other guys were praying and asking God to move and and give them the words to say and and to move in this person and bring them to faith. Um, Number five, display of community. I, I think they were drawn to them because they were together. They were doing something. There was something about them that was that was different. The more that people can see this community that we're pursuing together, the more that they see that it's different than anything else that they experience in their life. And they want it. They want that. And so they need to see it. Uh, Number six, our experience of community. Not only is biblical community on display when we're on mission together, but our experience of biblical community grows deeper as well. You start praying about mission together. You start planning mission together. You start engaging in mission together. I promise you, you will experience a deeper intimacy in your community, in your base group than otherwise. Ask any person that's gone on an international mission trip together. By the end of that trip, that team has an intimacy that can't be explained any other way. And that's what your base group is. It's a team. It's a mission team. Number seven, training. The best way to learn how to share the gospel 
is by being with another brother or sister when they share the gospel. This is how I learned to share the gospel. When I was in college, I had just come to faith about a year earlier. And so when I went to college, I, 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 I knew that somehow this had to be implemented in my life. I knew that I had to tell other people about Jesus. I knew I, I needed to share my faith, but I had no idea how. And so I went to a Christian group on campus, and I said, I want to learn how to share my faith. And they, they took a book off the shelf, a little 12-week study. We walked through that 12-week study together, and I learned a lot in my head about how to share the gospel. But at the end of those 12 weeks, I had not shared the gospel. And so I went to another group on campus, and I said that happened to be Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew. And I said the exact same thing. I want to learn how to share my faith. I want to learn, learn how to share the gospel. Can you help me with that? And they said, well, in two weeks and, and, and during spring break, we're going to be going down to Daytona Beach, and we're going to share the gospel with a bunch of college students on the beach. And I'm like, sounds good. Let's do it. So I went down there, went down to Daytona Beach with these folks, and they paired us up two by two, just like Jesus did. One of the folks knew how to share the gospel uh, the, other, uh, the other person was green like me, had never shared the gospel, and I began to observe, and I saw, and I, and I learned, and I listened, and then I began sharing the gospel with this other person that, that week and share the gospel hundreds of times. And so that's one of the benefits of doing mission together is we learn how to evangelize. We learn how to share the gospel because we're doing it in community. And then number eight, I think it helps with our individual evangelism. I didn't have a chance to ask these guys, but I just wonder if what they learned, what they experienced there was fueling conversations in their workplace, around their neighborhood, where there's not a brother or sister alongside them. That what they experience in community directly translates to those opportunities where you don't have somebody with you, and now you're, you're more likely to actually engage in that. So, church, I want to exhort you to think about pray about, strategize about, leveraging your biblical community in your base group for the purpose of mission, and then just start doing it. And as you begin to strategize, as you begin to plan, I want to give you three characteristics to consider. When we talk about, as a church, in our base groups, embracing mission together, here are three characteristics that I want you to keep in mind. First of all, there must be an opportunity to show and share the gospel. It's about displaying the gospel and declaring the gospel. It's both and, not either or. So we want to serve people as a display of the transformation that the gospel has made in our lives together. But we also want to have an opportunity to actually verbalize and declare the gospel at some point. So for example, we can serve in a soup kitchen together, right? We can serve in a soup kitchen together, but the question is, is there an opportunity there to engage people in relationship with the hope of one, at some point, sharing the gospel with them? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, depending on the situation. But what we're after in our base groups, what we're asking you to embrace is that it be something that allows for both. And that we'd be intentional about both of those things. Number two, that it's more relational than institutional. It's more relational than institutional. As Tyler said last week, it's about people, not projects. Because people aren't projects. They're people. And they need to feel like people, not projects. 
So we're, we're after relational engagement, not programmed institu- institutional projects. Now, the caveat here is it might be a programmed project to where you are intentionally trying to meet people in that and intentionally build relationships with them so that you look for opportunities to serve them with the hopes of sharing the gospel and gospel opportunities with them. But the point is, we need to be intentional about both of those things. And we, and we don't need to sacrifice the latter because we're majoring on the former. But one of the implications of this characteristic, by the way, is that we want to encourage you to make the connection back to New Branch, back to the church, subtle, not explicit. To make the connection back to the institutional church, because we're the church out there, right? And we want to make that connection back to the institutional ch- church, the, the, the building, the, the gathering. We want to make that implicit rather than explicit. I think this is just a reality of the kind of postmodern world that we live in. But the reality is that many times if folks know that they're coming to your house because you're doing a mission project from your church, they're going to feel like what? Project. But if they're coming to your house because they're your neighbor and you want a relationship with them, and in your house you happen to have a couple of friends that are Christians that you're doing life with, well, then they're going to feel like a person, not a project. And then thirdly, third characteristic that I want you to keep in mind is that we want our community to be on display. This goes without saying, perhaps, but what we're after is mission together. What we're asking you to embrace in your base group is not just mission, but mission together. And this community that we've been learning about in this series, that that we want to be pressing in to one another. The gospel transformation that we're pursuing together, this, this identity that we now have as a gospel community, we want to put that on display in our mission together. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to replace the second person plural pronouns here with y'all. Jesus said, y'all are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let y'all's light shine before others, so that when they see y'all's good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's put our gospel-transformed, gospel-empowered community on display as we seek to display and declare the gospel to the world around us. And they will see it, and they will recognize it as something that is foreign to them, but they will want it. So y'all, let's do this. Are y'all with me? Let's make disciples together. Would you pray with me?